Get married at the skating rink. Get married at a roller skating rink. I feel like that would be the most fun wedding I'd ever been to. Don't invite Carla to your wedding. (laughs) Unless it's at a roller skating rink, in which case I'm definitely coming whether you invite me or not. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's episode of Pennies and Popcorn. Carla, do you know what the number one box office grossing rom-com of all time is? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. I believe it was my big fat Greek wedding. It was. And I have to say, and that's what our show is about today. I got to say kudos to Rita Wilson, also known as Tom Hanks's wife. Correct. For identifying from the play that they saw that this would make a heck of a movie. And they were right. Yeah, they were so right. So apparently this uh, story started out as a one woman show, which kind of blows my mind. I can't picture what that would look like, but it sounds kind of amazing and I would love to go back in time and see it. Yeah, I don't know how you do the play without Joey Fatone. (laughs) Joey Fatone is a critical piece of this cast. So, you know, I I don't know. It would be hard. Yeah, I wonder how you, you just show the overwhelming abundance of Greekness in the whole family with just a single person. That seems complicated. Is Joey Fatone actually Greek? I have no idea, but <laughs> I of the back of the I almost said Backstreet Boys and I, I, I you know, so there's the death penalty for these kinds of things. For sure. Um of the in sync guys, is there any that looks more Greek than him? Jeez, I don't remember all of the in sync guys. Can you name them all? Come on, Carlo. I totally can't. I mean, JT was the big one who went on to have a far more successful solo career. I actually remember hearing once or like reading in an interview once that the other members of NSYNC were waiting for like a decade for JT to come back and like reunite NSYNC. And Justin Timberlake was like, uh, I loved you guys in the dust a long time ago. I'm not coming back, dudes. You need to move on. I'm pretty sure it's just Chris Kirkpatrick. Um, Chris Kirkpatrick. He's the, the only, only reason one. I know his name is because it's a lyric in an Eminem song. Um, yeah, Chris Kirkpatrick talking this shit, that shit. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, don't forget about Lance Bass. Oh, yeah. And, I, can, I can never get them straight. Like, who's in sync and who's the Backstreet Boys? They're basically the same humans. And then JC Chazé. I don't know why I'm acting like I don't know. I definitely know these guys <laughs> by first name. Yeah, get it all out in the open. That's right. This is important trivia for you folks out there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Joey Fatone, he was the one who made the band and the one who made the movie. Yeah. I actually remembered him having a bigger role in the film. I thought so too. Yeah, Yeah. it was pretty minor. He was just very much in the background. Yeah, just the goofy cousin trying to cause trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of echoes his role in NSYNC, right? Like he wasn't the lead in NSYNC either. But you know, he was there. (laughs) He got his name in lights. Wow. He was there. (laughs) Harsh. It's more than I can say, I was not there for any events. Yeah, what, anything. What boy band or girl band did you form? I didn't. I just straight up didn't. So he's got one on me. That's for yeah. sure. If only you were there. If only. So here's my favorite fun fact about this film. Nia Vardalos, who plays the lead in the film, who wrote the story, um, she, I think it's kind of like semi-autobiographical based on her life. And this fact makes it seem even more autobiographical. So she actually ended up married to a non-Greek guy named Ian, 
not Ian Miller, like we see in the movie, but Ian Gomez. So Ian Gomez was actually in the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Do you know which cast member he was? Um, Ian Miller. <laughs> he is not Ian Miller. It was not John Corbett, um, a.k.a. Aiden from Sex and the City. No, it was uh, John Corbett's friend um, slash best man in the wedding. Oh, like the other teacher at school? Yeah, exactly. Neat. That is her real life husband. It feels so heartbreaking to me. They actually got divorced pretty recently in 2018 after almost 25 years of marriage. Did, so that's a downer. Did Joy Fatone have something to do with it? I think he might have. I think he might have. Okay. Um, <laughs> did you know that in the wedding scene in the movie, all of the people on the bride's side are actually that actress's Greek family? Yeah. That is so fun to me. I mean, it really just feels like she got to showcase her crazy family and tell this great story of what her life was kind of like. So yeah, it was super fun to read that fact. So I read that this movie had the second best return on investment of any major Hollywood production. They spent like five or $6 million making it and it grossed like over $300 million. Yeah, I think in the high 300s. Yeah, Yeah. over 60 times what they invested to make the movie got Mm -hmm. returned, which is just unheard of, right? Yeah, that is pretty freaking solid. It was kind of an indie film. Which, you know, it's it's such a like famous rom-com. It doesn't feel like that in hindsight. But at the time, yeah, it was an indie little movie. All right, my last Joy Fatone reference. Like, how much of the $5 million or so dollar budget do you think went, went to him? <laughs> I have no idea. They didn't like publish who got paid what in the cast. But I'm guessing he didn't draw a huge salary. I don't know. Because again, two, not Justin mil. Timberlake. I don't know. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> what can I say? Well... My favorite character in the movie, and I don't think we're going to get to talk to her about it, about it a lot, is uh, Aunt Vula. Man, she was great. She really was fantastic. She just makes the movie in my eyes. She what really would does. it be without the bibopsy, without her like talking about eating her twin in the womb, without like... Just all the fun. Yeah, she has so many great lines in the movie. I want an Aunt Vula. I know. Let's have one. Let's just invent one. Okay. Find one off the streets and yeah. make her move in with us. Is this something you can find on Craigslist today? Definitely. I'll start shopping. Okay. Um, so they're actually filming a third one. Like, actually, I think they just wrapped filming this month. We're filming this episode of Pennies and Popcorn in August of 2022. And they just wrapped up filming in well, Greece, actually. Was the second one successful? I mean, I didn't see it. (laughs) I don't know a lot of people who saw it. My guess is that it wasn't nearly as big of a smash as the first one. Okay. Um, They also made a TV show spinoff, which I never saw. I don't know how well that did. But, uh, you know, a lot of people love the story, so it's easy to see why people would want more. Fair enough. So the film came out in 2002. I'm guessing people have not seen this super recently, so we can do just a super brief plot summary um, Nia Vardalos, the writer slash lead actress in the movie, um, plays herself more or less, but her character's name is Tula in the film. And Tula is just, hasn't really found her groove in life. She's 30 years old. She works at her parents' restaurant and she just kind of yearns for something more. Also, her family is kind of hideous to her and treats her like she's just a cow to be bred and like her only value in life is to get married. Um... And they tell her she looks old all the time, (laughs) which is just terrible. Um, But she, I think she finds like a flyer for some college classes and it just piques her interest. 
And she decides, you know what, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to try to change my life, get control of it. And she starts to, you know, dress in a way that makes her feel better. Yeah, I think she sheds a little bit of her Greekness and wants to open up a little bit more to the rest of what America has to offer. Yeah, she doesn't seem super fulfilled by the family life that she has. It feels like it's kind of a burden to her in a lot of ways. So I think she wants to just branch out on her own, be her own person a little bit. So she takes these computer classes um, and she ends up by chance meeting this guy, uh, the actor John Corbett, who played Aiden in Sex and the City. I think probably most famously, that's got to be his other most famous role um, besides this. And yeah, his name in the show is Ian and they develop a thing for each other. Um, date in secret for a while because he's not Greek, which means he's not cool with the family. And that's pretty much all you need to know. And as the name of the movie implies, they get married at the end. Yeah. It's a a happy, happy ending um, with lots of Greek craziness thrown in. Agreed. And one other factoid, I don't think the movie was officially sponsored by Windex. (laughs) (laughs) But Tula's dad decides that that is a cure-all for everything. He does. And I will say that that is a thing that comes up in our life a lot because I also am a big fan of Windex and I feel like it is an all-purpose cleaning product and I use it on lots of surfaces that are not glass. This bugs you to no end and we have lots of arguments about the proper application of Windex. Leave some comments below about how you <laughs> feel about this, listeners, as people misapply chemicals to you know, solvents on, on surfaces that are not designed for that kind of chemical treatment. Yeah, let us know how you feel about the Windex thing, because I feel it is a very versatile chemical with lots of important applications. Mm-hmm. I've never put it on my skin, at least not intentionally, to cure anything like a pimple or what is what is uh, psoriasis? I think that's <laughs> what he recommends it for. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe it would have really come in handy in like my teen years when I had a lot of pimples on my face. Well, I know that it doesn't come in handy for you know, making the wood floor shine. (laughs) I don't use it for that. I'm not a monster. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's jump into our first clip where we see Ian and Tula on, I think their first date, learning a little bit more about each other. Actually, I wasn't in education first. I was pre-law. My dad's a lawyer and my grandfather's a lawyer and uh, just wasn't for me. So picked a new major (laughs) and the parents weren't too pleased, you know? Yeah. I think it, um, I think it takes a pretty strong person to do that. Oh, so romantic. (laughs) Okay, so he was kind of pressured by his family to become a lawyer. I also am an attorney. I was very much not pressured by my parents to become an attorney. In fact, my dad tried to make sure that I really understood what I was getting into before I went down this path that it's a, you know, a very tough gig and it's only gotten harder over the years. Um, so he actually, I wouldn't say he discouraged me from doing it, but it was definitely not like, this is the pathway you should follow in life. This is the family way. It's very, very far from that. Well, and I think that's pretty atypical, right? We've talked about this a little bit before on past episodes about how so many children follow in the footsteps of their parents. They see an example and they replicate it, right? They, they don't necessarily know about the world of options out there. 
And I think it's something worth talking about today. You grabbed some interesting data on this, right, Carla? I do have some fascinating numbers. So there are organizations out there who have decided to like track this and they've done surveys of families. So overall, a man is 2.7 times more likely than the population at large to do whatever dad does. Just whatever, yeah. anything. Yeah. Um, a woman is 1.8 times as likely to do what her mom does. So what you're saying is like roughly if, if three out of every thousand people in the world is a glass blower. Yeah. If your parent were a glass blower, your odds were more like six out of every every thousand people. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, however, there's much more detail on it than that. So a lot of organizations have drilled down to provide even more detail on specific jobs and how much more likely you are to follow in a parent's footsteps if they do a specific thing. So do you want to take a guess at what is the profession that has the strongest correlation between... This is, I'm going to give a little hint here, probably between fathers and sons, like the likeliest profession to follow in your footsteps. Professional athlete? Uh, No, that's actually a really good guess. It's a fisher. Someone who fishes for a living, a fisher person. (laughs) If if your father is a professional fisherman, like he goes and catches crab in Alaska, you're way more likely than the population at large to do that to be exact 362 times more likely this makes sense there's some like geographic bias to this totally right like your dad is not likely to be a professional fisherman if you live in lincoln nebraska yep yep um probably not going to happen if you live in little rock arkansas (laughs) if if you live along a coast somewhere you've really dropped the pool of people down yeah this sounds like a trick Okay, so here's another one that's crazy, crazy high. Being a legislator... Like a congressperson? Exactly. Is 354 times more likely than the population at large. Um, so yeah, if, if mom is in Congress, you're 350 times more likely to follow her footsteps than if your parent is not in Congress. The number, like the, the fraction, you know, the rate of increase is surprising that it's one of the highest, I guess is not. Name recognition is huge in that department. Yeah, and so true. If you are the child of someone who's done it in the past, people know who you are and they just, if they liked your parents, chances are they'll like you. Yeah, I think it's just also a profession that feels like it has a really high barrier to entry, right? Like it just seems so foreign and elite to most people. It's expensive. Yeah, for sure. Running for office costs a lot. So having a leg up like that, having seen somebody go through the process, you probably have a way better understanding of how fundraising works. Family connections. Exactly. I think that makes sense that you would be heavily, heavily biased towards following in their footsteps. All right. Okay, so those are like the big Whopper numbers. Everything else is going to be way lower than that. Do you have the number for Whopper makers? I do not have the number. For that, but I do have, so lawyer is the one we're talking about in my big fat Greek wedding. That's the one that applies to me. You are 17 times more likely to become a lawyer if a parent has that profession. That certainly applies to both me and my brother. So that makes a lot of sense to me. For doctors, it's about 23 times more likely. Those, those don't surprise me at all, right? I think you have higher education in your family like that. Going beyond a bachelor's degree, it seems quite likely that parents would 
drive you that same direction. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, plumbers, 14 times more likely to become a plumber. That one actually feels a little bit low to me. I feel like... Do you know like lineages of plumbers who my father was a plumber and his father before him and his father before him were plumbers? I guess, I feel like my bias is maybe coming from the fact that so many plumbing companies have and sons in the title. <laughs> maybe that's where it's coming from. I think it does make sense. It's a trade that you can learn early on. Certainly you can get into it quickly. Yeah. You may not be a pro at the beginning, but you can get into it relatively quickly and start helping out at a young age. Yeah. And uh, you can make really good money doing it as well. Yeah. So for electricians, you are nine times more likely than a random person uh, to become an electrician if you have a parent who is, and five times as likely for a carpenter. Okay. So some interesting stats. And then I have one more that I thought was fun and interesting. Librarians, you are 106 times more likely than the average population at large to become a librarian if you have a parent who's a librarian. Do librarians regularly have children? Oh, burn. Okay, I'm going to take that one very personally because although I am not a librarian, I feel like a librarian at heart. <laughs> and I love librarians and libraries. No, I, that, that, this upsets me greatly. Uh, <laughs> it actually surprises me that that would have, have that strong of a correlation there. Uh, while I, I have a lot of respect for librarians, I just wouldn't have expected it necessarily to to pass down. I think I think there'd be a lot of children who sort of resent the quieter nature of the librarians and the, the, the sort of restrictive on the outside perspective that a lot of people think they're going to have in their home if they have a parent as a librarian. Oh my gosh. I would think having a librarian parent would be like the most fun thing ever. But they, they, know, to, they like, know too much. They have to plan a lot of activities for the library. They're probably really good at doing stuff like that. They're good at like organization and they know a ton about books. Your library at home would be super well organized. These are all good qualities to have in a parent. All right. Well, let's go back to Ian Miller, right? So his parents were not pleased when he decided not to go on to law school and and carry out his path of finishing pre-law, and he became a teacher. They live in Chicago. Um, Should the parents have been disappointed about this career choice? It breaks my heart to think that any parent would ever be disappointed about someone becoming a teacher. I just think it's one of the most noble professions that we have. It's so important to have really good quality people in the classroom helping to shape young minds. So so I did some research here uh, on some data from the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, Carla, what do you think the starting salary is for like a first year teacher for this fall 2022 school year that's just beginning? So I, do, I assume we're talking public school here, right? Yes. So Chicago is a pretty big metropolitan area. I would imagine that they pay towards the top end of the range. I'm going to guess 65K. So if you have just a bachelor's degree, it's $59,894 for your first year. Okay. Um, What do you think the number is for your first year if you have like a law degree, a PhD, an MD? I think think there's a doctorate of education as well. But if you've got something beyond just a master's degree. Oh, as a teacher, I didn't... That makes sense. You would get a pay bump for that. Um, $69,000. It's seventy two. dollars Ah, there you go. Yeah, and I think like you can probably expect to earn um, 45000 or so more than that towards the end of your career after you've been in there for like 30 years or so. I mean, that I know the teachers are woefully underpaid, 
but and Chicago is an expensive place to live, so it's not a it's not a fantastic salary. We shouldn't pretend that it is. But if that's a career that you really enjoy, good grief. Like as a parent, you should not be disappointed in your kid for going into that career. I agree. It's a wonderful profession. And while I do think there are a whole, bunch, a whole lot of challenges with our education industry, and I expect there to be a lot of innovation over the coming decades, it's a wonderful thing to do, certainly for Ian Miller in 2002. And his parents shouldn't be disappointed uh, with where he's at. Yeah, totally agreed. So let's move on. In the movie, Ian and Tula go on more than this first date. And eventually Tula invites him over to meet the rest of the family. And they get together and they have a gathering. And Ian and uh, Tula's Aunt Vula, one of our favorite (laughs) characters, are talking at the party. When you come to my house and I cook for you. Okay. Uh, yeah, that might be a problem. What's problem? I had the best cook in the family, tell you. Oh, I did, didn't I? Twice. Okay, then. <laughs> oh. um, it's just, uh... yeah. Ian is a vegetarian. He doesn't eat meat. He don't eat no meat? No, he doesn't eat meat. What do you mean he don't eat no meat? Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I make lamb. Come. Come. How often do you think we say, what you mean you don't eat no meat in our house? (laughs) It's a good line. It's a really good line. Yeah, she's the best. So we thought it would be fun to take this opportunity uh, to talk about vegetarianism and whether it actually saves you money. So we are not vegetarians. I... Would someday like to be a vegetarian. <laughs> I think it aligns with, you know, my principles about climate change and it's good for planet Earth, which we're actually going to talk about a little bit. Um, but it's just sheer lack of willpower. I just really like meat. I feel like it's also easier to eat healthy when you have meat in your diet. For me, I just go like heavy on the carbs when we're not eating a lot of meat. Yeah, I think so. you're right. I, I don't have the discipline to eat like broccoli instead of meat. And instead, we'll eat just pure sugar instead of the meat calories. Yeah. Being a vegetarian is definitely not a guaranteed healthy diet. You can do it abominably, which I fear is how we would do it. Um, But that being said, I'm super, super proud of everyone out there who's pulling it off because I think it's a great thing for people to do. So meat is expensive, right? And it's certainly gone up a lot in this last bout of inflation that we've been facing. So how much money do you think you can save on average, over the course of a year, if you're strictly vegetarian? Wow. This is not a number that I have attempted to estimate (laughs) before. Um, Come on, badass estimator. You can do it. Yeah, this is hard. So there's 365 days in a year. Uh, Let's go with $2,500. Nope. (laughs) Not even close? It's a lot lower than that. Okay. Well, I was assuming we were eating fancy meat. (laughs) So the average, so this number is a little bit outdated, I will say. And it's a tough thing to track, right? Because you don't know how much people who are meat eaters are really, like how much meat they're actually buying um, and what kind of meat they're buying. As you point out, there's big variation in quality. So I would definitely say it is possible you could save up to that much. I mean, think about all those Fogo to Chow trips you're just not going to (laughs) do. The Brazilian steakhouse is out. It's totally out. Um, so the number that the internet gives you is $750 a year. That's like the estimate for what you can save. 
not even worth it. I mean, there are other reasons to go vegetarian besides saving money. <laughs> that's no, that's nothing to sneeze at, right? Like, imagine if you could save that on your like home insurance bill, right? You'd be pretty jazzed about that. Like, that's a pretty good chunk of change. But I have to give up all of the delicacies. I mean, yeah, that's that's like this is the reason we're not vegetarian. We really like meat. It's a tough thing to give up. But uh, it's not. I'm just saying, seven hundred fifty dollars is not a bad sum of money to put back in your pocket every year. And as you point out, it could be more depending on how often, what kind of meat you're eating. So another interesting thing is they have plant-based meat substitutes, right? So the biggest names out there are Beyond Meat and Impossible Meat. Um, And we have tried both of those and think they're pretty darn good. You can tell a difference, but it's not bad. Yeah, it's not like the soy-based products that people have had in the past. These things are lab-developed and totally artificial. I think a lot of people think they're healthy when they totally aren't, right? They have the same caloric and fat challenges as normal beef and normal sausage or whatever it is they're trying to imitate. Um, but I think they taste pretty good. Yeah, they, yeah. they definitely... There is a slight difference. You can tell that you're not eating regular meat, but... You can tell you're not eating cardboard or, you know, tofu or I don't know what. I feel like we're making it sound way worse than it is. They're actually very delicious. Yeah. We genuinely like them. Yeah. Um, it just, it doesn't taste quite like the real thing, but it tastes like something really amazing all on its own. So can I save $750 a year if I cut out all of my meat and switch to plant-based meat instead? Not yet, but it's coming soon to a grocery store near you. So you can buy these things at pretty much any grocery store in America today but they're going to be more expensive than, quote, real beef from an actual dead cow who had to die so you could eat it. I realize I'm talking to myself here. I eat them too. But yeah, it's, it should be a sad thing, right? I think we should all be excited about this revolution towards like things that taste very, very close to the real deal without having to make an animal suffer and contribute to carbon emissions and all that jazz. Have the prices of these plant-based meat substitutes gone up as much as, you know, traditional meat has in the last year or two? They have been going up with inflation just like everything else. So right now, the cost of um, Beyond Meat is almost double what you can pay for just like normal, not like a high-end ground beef, but just like normal ground beef. However, they are very quickly trying to close the gap, and their predictions are that by 2023, which as we sit here today in August of 2022 is potentially as close as four months away um, is, you know, not far at all. So keep an eye on those prices because they're predicting that they're going to come down quickly. Is that a function of demand increases? Are they finding ways to manufacture it less expensively, even at the volumes that they're making it today? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That was an or question. Oh, the latter, I think. They're finding ways to manufacture it more cheaply. Okay. I was wondering if as the products became more prevalent and more popular in culture, if, you know, if they make three times as much or 10 times as much, if they can do it for for less cost, or if some of the ingredients are hard to source and you'll actually get to a different spot on the demand curve. Yeah, I I don't have a full analysis for you. Well, Carla, you need to give up this law career and (laughs) do the plant-based meat science. Come on. Yeah, I do think it's a fascinating area and I highly recommend everybody to go give it a shot and see if you like it because... It's a great way to save a little bit of carbon emissions by eating something that's plant-based. So I did a little research on that as well and have some numbers for you. So eating 
2.2 pounds of beef a day. <laughs> uh, that would be a lot. How, so, so how many pounds of beef do you think the average American eats every year? Ooh, 80. That's actually a little less than that. It's about 55. Well, I'm no average American. <laughs> so if you take 2.2 pounds of beef is, will emit carbon equivalent to... You can say a kilogram. <laughs> I'm trying to make it American friendly, but yes, that is how they, that is how the statistic was written. A kilogram, which is about 2.2 pounds is the equivalent of driving about 63 miles. So that's a, that's a good ways to go. So if the average American is eating 55 pounds of meat a year, that's the equivalent of driving 1,575 miles a year. Okay. In terms of carbon emissions? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Which is, that's, that's a lot. That's a big, like long road trip or a lot of, you know, pretty long commutes. Um, compare that with other animal products. Cheese is also pretty high up there. Cheese is the equivalent of driving about 31 miles. A kilogram of cheese, again, 2.2 pounds, is the equivalent of driving 31 miles. When we get down to the other end of the spectrum, a vegetable is the equivalent of about four and a half miles of driving. Okay. Or 2.2 pounds of vegetables, which is a lot of vegetables. It's mostly water. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you can definitely help planet Earth quite a bit by eating more vegetables. The more you know. The more you know. I will say chicken is a better choice. Chicken is the equivalent of driving 16 miles. So much more palatable than 63 for beef. How does it change when that chicken is fried? Robert, I think you know the answer to that question. <laughs> and I'm a little offended that you're asking. All right, well, let's move forward in the movie. <laughs> so Ian and Tula, they continue dating and they decide that they're going to get married. Woohoo! Yay. Uh, so our next clip is Ian and Tula at his parents' house telling them about their uh, wedding plans. We took a look at my calendar and uh, our calendar. <laughs> Set a day uh, for the big day sometime at the end of October, mid-November. Sometime in there, yeah. Oh, wonderful. I'll call the club and see what's open. The club? The North Shore Country Club. For the wedding, of course. Oh, we're going to get married in Tula's church. Because we're not very religious, and her family is. Really is. Show them the brochure. Oh, the... My cousin Nikki made me this. She tends to uh, save things. Um, this is from her prom. Like she makes lamps and uh well tell them about we got this oh, great big hall uh what's it called for the reception uh, aphrodite's palace it's uh, not really a palace <laughs> she's a brochure that parthenon backdrop that's optional <laughs> yeah i mean who <clears throat> who wants to be mandated to have the parthenon backdrop yeah definitely want that to be an option so what you can't see uh listening to this is that Ian's parents are like the most straight-laced, like old white people with no flair about them whatsoever. Like they're just the most vanilla boring people. And they are so aghast at the idea of this kind of like gaudy Greek wedding <laughs> and this crazy uh, notebook that she pulls out that has this brochure for Aphrodite's palace in it is like got uh, fringe all over it. It's just kind of crazy looking. Looks like it's made out of a pom-pom. It does. It does. So 
I think this clip brings up a couple of interesting questions to discuss. Um, so for the wedding venue, that's a huge part of the wedding cost overall that people are going to be shelling out for when they're getting married. So we've talked a little bit before in previous episodes about the average cost of weddings in America. It's about $28,000, which is an astonishing number. That's a lot of money to spend, especially for some young people who are just starting out in life. Um, and the venue can be a really huge part of that. So I think that's probably the main thing. If you can cut back on the venue, you're going to be able to cut back on a lot of things. Food is probably going to be less expensive if you're going to a venue that's not super restrictive on like where you can get things catered from or that has like a minimum amount of food you have to buy. That can help a lot. So they also are talking here about using a country club as a potential wedding venue. So Robert, tell me about country clubs and how much they cost. Well, I mean, they vary a ton, right? They, they're a lot, right? So we should make it an admission here. Back <laughs> when we lived in Dallas, we used to play a lot of golf and we became members or junior members, the, the young executive program, I think oh, is yeah. what it was called uh -huh. uh, at a country club. Uh, and I think it cost us nearly $300 a month for like the basic dues. And they had something where you could pay $50 a month and get half off on dining and also get access to other clubs in the area. And they had to play, pay for your golf cart fees. And, you know, we were lucky because when you do this young person membership thing, you don't have to pay a big initiation fee. Or any initiation fee. We, we didn't pay any. Yeah. Maybe we paid a month's worth of dues or I think it was waived actually. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, anyway, it's, it's probably $5,000 a year or more for us to be a member of that club. Now we played a ton of golf and we hung out there a ton. We had several friends who were active members there, but there was a trivia night that we went to seemingly every month and had a blast. It basically became the heartbeat of our social scene. And if that's what you're going to do, I suppose is not the most ludicrous use of your money. Um, these parents here, I think they said they were members of the North Shore Country Club, now, I don't know if they know the folks from Mean Girls, because I think they lived in the North Shore, like North Shore High School or something like that. That sounds right. Um, but North Shore Country Club is actually a real place. And it looks like the initiation fee is about $85,000. And your annual dues are on the order of $9,000. Um, they probably also, in this kind of private organization, have the ability to levy some sort of costs in the future if they need to redo their greens or the clubhouse is, you know, starting to fall off its foundation and they got to do major repairs or upgrades. So you're probably going to spend more than that over time as well. Yeah, that is just a heart stopping sum of money that, uh, yeah, I look back on those days when you and I were in a country club. I mean, to be fair, we were earning a really great salary, both of us at the time. We could very comfortably afford it. It was not a stretch at all. But man, it just, uh, it doesn't really align with our values anymore. Um, but yeah, we, we did extract a lot of value out of it, I think. And potentially you could make a case that it's not a horrible thing to do if you are super, super into golf and you're going to be paying a lot of greens fees anyway. But yeah, it is a very expensive thing to do. Yeah, I don't recommend joining the North Shore Country Club as a way to make your child's wedding costs 
palatable. <laughs> um, so Carly, we start talking about wedding venues that are lower cost. What kind of places would you recommend someone go to if so, not a country club? So I did a little looking around on the internet to find something. So find like some fun and creative ideas about where to get married. And the internet did not let me down. There were so many fun, like kooky, off the wall ideas that I never would have considered, but that sound really fun and also sound like they're probably going to be fairly inexpensive for the most part. So I'm going to rattle off a list of things here. There is a butterfly pavilion right here in Longwood, Colorado that you can rent for, I think as little as $500. That looks beautiful. How much do you have to pay the butterflies? The butterflies work for free, Robert. They are very friendly butterflies. All right. Um, Planetariums are another place where you can potentially get married, which sounds like a fun thing to me. Just generally like conference centers. So it's probably not going to be quite as romantic of a setting as a butterfly pavilion or a planetarium, but it could be very, very low cost. And it just depends on the setting and where it is, right? It could be pretty. So just thinking outside the box, I think is the most important takeaway here. Restaurants are, can be another great place to look. They often probably won't charge you as much as like a, a fancy hotel. Um, backyards are probably your best option, right? If you've got a friend or if you yourself or someone in your family has a nice big backyard, that is by far and away the best thing you can do. It's going to be free. You're going to have total control over the food situation. That's your best bet if you can pull it off call back to the librarians because libraries are another fun place that you can potentially get married. Probably don't want to do the reception there. I mean, maybe during after hours. I don't know. You'd have to talk to your local librarian and see what you can pull off, but that would be another potential fun venue to explore. Bowling alleys. I know that sounds a little low brow. I've never been, well, I, I haven't been super into bowling since high school. I had a minor stint as a bowler in high school, but uh, but at least not really my thing, but it sounds kind of fun, right? I can picture people like all dressed up and having a great time, you know, just throwing bowling balls around. And Well, I do think uh, a marriage commitment is a very solemn thing and something you should take quite seriously. I think people probably have uh, a little bit of a stick in the mud sometimes when it comes to thinking about creative ways to celebrate this big life change with their friends and family. And I, I like some of these ideas. Yeah. Okay. I have two more. Okay. Ice skating slash roller skating rinks. Oh, you would have fallen down and broken yourself. <laughs> I, I totally would have, but maybe someone more coordinated than I am could have a really fun time at that. Can you imagine what a fun wedding that would be at a roller skating rink? I feel like that would be the best thing ever. I mean, I'm struggling to picture all the great grandmothers, you know, wheeling themselves out there on the regulation size wheels. Okay, but that's the best part. You don't have to go roller skating, right? Every roller skating rink I've ever been to... And it's been a hot minute since I've been to one. I'll give you that. But they have like big areas that are not the roller skating rink where people can Where second out. graders have parties? Exactly. Nice. Exactly. Okay. I feel like that could be a super fun wedding. And I cannot imagine it would be expensive. Um, and then finally, some kind of like summer camp facility. So we uh. so Camp Phi, which we went to recently, was at like kind of a retreat sort of place where you could imagine kind of summer campy type events happening. Someplace like that could have some really great facilities that you could check out. So think outside the box, do a little Googling. And yeah, I think like Robert's point is great. Like try not to be so, you know, uptight about it. It's it's ultimately a party, right? It's supposed to be fun. So do something 
wacky and creative and original and try not to spend $20,000. I like it. Okay, so we've heard what the Millers think about this wedding approach and where they want to do it. Let's hear a conversation that Tula has with her family. Yes, yes, Marty, if we invite the Demacopolis, we have to invite the Adamopolis, the cousin. Ah, Costa Xero. Right. Dad, the thing is that we just want to keep it small. It's like you'd rather go bankrupt than insult anyone from the church. Tula, I come to this country with eight dollars in my pocket to make all this for you. And who knows? How long I'm going to be alive? Let me see the list. Oh, you got to love that guilt trip. Right? It's pretty easily in it on thick there. So he wants to invite everybody under the sun to this wedding. Um, we're talking about the cost of the venue, but the cost per head. Typically, there's food or drinks or both and to varying degrees. Like the marginal cost per person is not inconsequential. So what, what kind of cost per head? are we looking at for a typical wedding? So I found a statistic about catering that catering typically costs about 100 to $200 per person. Um, Doesn't that sound bananas to you? It does sound very, very high, especially given that the quality of food at weddings is usually not like It's supreme. a buffet. It's yeah. not like it's not catered to your personal preferences. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that that is the the number that I've got, though. Um, but in general, so we have that $28,000 figure for the overall cost of a wedding. Um, the average head count at a wedding is 105. So that means you're looking at about $266 per person if you want to break it down like that. But a lot of those costs you're probably going to spend regardless of how many people are coming, right? Like the dress and the tuxes and gifts for people and decorations and yeah, invitations all that jazz. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the cost of invitations and decorations probably goes up marginally depending on the size, but not a ton. So it's mainly food and drink is and the size of the venue. Those are your big three when you're looking at cost per head. So let's talk more about the fighting that's happening here, right? Tula wants to decrease the number of guests. I think it's very common for parents to have extended family friends or, you know, extended family that the child isn't maybe as close with and isn't as certain that they want to invite to their wedding uh, or vice versa, right? The child has this huge network of people that they want to invite. And and sometimes people are relying on parents to support them in their wedding costs. And the attendee list is a bit longer than the budget can support. What, how do you, how do you reconcile this stuff? I is there, there's no good answer. Guilt trips. Is that the way to do it? (laughs) Just mention that you're getting older and you know, never know how long you'll be around. No, it's an incredibly hard thing for people to draw that line in the sand and be like, you're close enough to me to come to this huge event and you're just not, right? That's what you're saying. I will say from my perspective, I, I'm i not like a huge party person in general. So unless oh, We know you, no one invites you. Yeah. Unless you're going to have your wedding somewhere super fun, like a roller skating rink or butterfly pavilion, I'm probably not going to be like super bummed to miss out on any given party. Um... So I generally like, am like, great, don't feel, do not feel obligated to invite me to your wedding. I'm all good over here, zero pressure. But not everybody feels that way. There's a lot of people that get extremely butthurt when they don't get invited to a wedding. I think you just have to go person by person, try to feel out 
which of these people is like Carla and will not be offended at <laughs> all if I don't invite them to my wedding? And which of these people is like, I don't know, some other person who really loves parties who will be super offended if I don't invite them? You don't want to decide based on how much fun they'll make the event itself? I mean, I guess it's a factor, but mostly I would just be trying not to hurt feelings. That's reasonable. Yeah, but it's a tough thing to do. If anybody out there has the magic formula, I'm sure you can make a lot of money by publishing that because everybody worries about that when they're putting together a wedding list. I think if you're struggling with the number of people you're trying to invite, if if there's pressure to bring more than one of the parties who's got a vote in the decision is is seeking, that's where you got to cut back on something else, right? And err on the side of inviting more people and, and dial it back with something that's less important. Yeah, I will say, generally speaking, the more the merrier, right? Like I very much believe that, especially if they're people who are fun, like you said, like gauging who's going to make the party fun and who's not. So if you want to try to, I would, I would err more on the side of like having a less fancy wedding and making sure you have lots of good, fun people there. Okay. Which is also a good way to live your life. Worry less about like living in a fancy house and more about having fun, happy friends. Well, let's talk about Tula's dad here and the American dream. So he came to this country with $8 in his pocket and now he's got all this to give to his daughter Tula. And in fact, they give an extraordinarily generous wedding gift to Tula and Ian. They gift them a house. Yep. The house next door to them, but a house. <laughs> a little bit of a catch there. Uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't get a house as a wedding gift. Should we? I think we should go yell at our parents and just be really upset with what them. What was the deal? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a crazy generous thing for them to do. And it's definitely demonstrating that this family did really well, despite coming here with, as he says, $8 in their pocket. So I have a couple of fun stats for us on immigrants and how often they start businesses when they come to the United States. Um, so I practice immigration law for fun, and um, I've worked with a lot of immigrants who have started their own business. So I've looked into these stats a little bit, and it's very, uh, it's very impressive how many of these folks actually have the drive to like get their own business going. And we certainly see that on display in the movie, right? Not only is the family running the restaurant, they've also started a travel agency and a dry cleaning business as well. So I think they're like the perfect demonstration of that very like go-getter attitude that a lot of immigrants have when they come here. That the workforce opportunities aren't limited to just the standard jobs that are available by somebody else, but, yeah. but you can make your own. Yeah, exactly. So an immigrant is 80% more likely to start a business from scratch than a native-born American citizen, which is pretty astounding, right? That's quite a big jump in the level of entrepreneurship that we see between native-born Americans and people who come here as immigrants. Well, yeah, that is a pretty big increase. And I think it makes sense, right? If you're coming without a whole lot, um, it's hard. You may not have had the same educational opportunities. And so, uh, or maybe the education that you received in your home country isn't given the credit that it probably deserves by American companies. Yeah. And so your opportunity for equality and the best shot may rest on your own ingenuity and creativity. Yeah. I think that's a very good analysis of why that happens. Um, and it's great. I mean, they're 
those immigrants are creating a lot of jobs that a lot of native-born American citizens can end up taking. So it's a good thing for the economy overall. All right, last clip. We've got Tula and her brother sharing a very sweet moment and talking about how Tula has inspired him to also go back to school. I'm going to start slowly, you know, do a couple of, couple of night courses. I just wanted to learn more about painting and, and art and stuff, so... This is so great. <laughs> yeah, you started it. You wanted to do something else, Tuna, and you did it. Hey, Tula, don't let your past dictate who you are, but let it be part of who you will become. Nick, that is so beautiful. Yeah. That dear Abby, she really knows what she's talking about. <laughs> Who is this guy, right? Like, he's he wants to learn about painting and art and stuff. I thought he was this, like, joker who was hanging out with Joey Fatone trying to make Ian look like an idiot by saying offensive things in Greek. Why can't he be both, Robert? <laughs> Incompatible. So, it seems to me like the a good career path for him would potentially be, like, a graphic designer, right? We see him drawing new covers for the menu he's like trying out different styles and things so it doesn't seem crazy to me for him to go back to school and study some some art classes and potentially become a graphic designer he's got a long way to go they did show his like drawing of a new cover for the menu and it didn't it didn't call to me (laughs) well i took an art history class in college robert so i am an expert in art and i can tell you that yeah it was just mediocre But you never know. He could have a a talent that just needs to be uh, honed a little bit. Do you think he's going back to school to take like an art history class? Or is he taking like a technical, here are some tips to improve your like technique for crafting your art? No, I hope it's the latter. I'm just like, that's the only brush with art that I've had in my life. So I'm just hanging my hat on that. Well, when he said he wanted to learn more about painting and art and stuff, it kind of made me worried that he was going to go learn about the Renaissance masters and <laughs> their works of art or, you know, more history and more just like how to be a, a leader at a museum than how to create something that might be worthy of being hung in a museum. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe I'm pigeonholing him into this graphic design thing. Maybe he does want to be an art historian. We just don't know. It's one of those mysteries. Maybe if we watch the sequel, we'll find out more about what happened to uh to nick here which nick are we talking about by the way there are like a lot of nicks in the family there are a lot of nicks nick anita and diane is like the name of almost everyone in the cast except for tulip um (laughs) yeah so i don't i don't know what he has in store for his future but i think as long as he's not going into debt or anything to take these classes it's always great to expand your horizons and explore new career options so i think it's good i felt like tula was going back to school to learn something productive that would help her you know earn money it was for it wasn't necessarily for a passion of hers but it was a way for her to break out of the mold uh and and being just in the family business to do her own thing yeah and i, I think she she was I, excited about it yeah well, what i was gonna say is i don't know that that's where nick is trying to go or if he's trying to go there I don't know if it's going to be very successful. I'm hopeful that he loves painting or he loves expressing himself through art and that he wishes that he had a better structure and some new techniques to to do that better 
and that he would get a lot of personal fulfillment. I hope he's not doing this to try to make some money. I don't know. So graphic designers can make a salary of about forty to $65,000 a year, which is not half bad. That's almost what you can make as a teacher. Um, I was going to say, speaking of salary, you know how the dad gave her a house? Do you think he was paying her the whole time when she was working there? Or if those were just like <laughs> withheld wages? He's like, oh yeah, I guess I... I probably should have owed you this for a long time. And uh, I guess I'll give it to you in the form of a house. Uh, that's a very good question. It would not shock me given the way that they treat women. It's just like underlings who do nothing but have babies. If he was just like, hey, you work for the family for free. Yeah, it, that would not shock me. So yeah. She lived at home that whole time. She did. It's a fair question. He may not have been paying her. Yeah. So he just, he just banked her wages for her <laughs> and it turned into a house. Just not impossible. I'm just going to say not impossible. All right. Well, I'm not sure that Nick should be going back to school if he's trying to make money, but whatever. What about you? Would you ever want to go back to school? I So I did a podcast with um, Doug over at the Mile High Fi show where we talked about this very thing. Would you go back to school? What would that look like? What would it feel like as an adult? And my answer was a resounding yes. I love school. I'm a big school geek. I loved everything about the environment. I would go back in a heartbeat to study almost anything. So I'm a big fan. I would definitely go back. What about you? So I I love learning. Um, I watched the movie Good Will Hunting. And Matt Damon certainly inspired me that, you know, you can learn most of the things that you would want to learn in that school for $1.50 in late charges at the library. Um, <laughs> My favorite place. Yeah. And also... YouTube, right? The internet is full today of fantastic information. So I sort of think if your goal is to learn something new, you can probably do it for very low cost without enrolling in a higher education program. If your goal is to get some credentials that allow you to break into a new job market where there are actual requirements that are a barrier to entry, if that's what you'd want to do, then I guess it makes sense to go back to school I love what I do. I don't know that I would really want to go back. Um, I, I can't picture having some other career path that I would want to go down that would require me to go get some new credentials. That, that doesn't seem likely for me. Yeah, and I fully get what you're saying about the library and that great quote from Goodwill Hunting, but I do think you get you get a lot more guidance on what to study. You get more guidance on like what are the new and interesting things that are happening in any particular field. But I, I think you can get that elsewhere today. I think you get a more curated experience come from a particular school, which can be a bad thing, right? If you have a bad curator, like a bad professor, who's not super up on their stuff, who's just like resting on their laurels and spouting the same thing year after year, then yeah, you could actually get a far worse experience in a classroom setting than you could by picking your own materials to read on your own. But... I don't know. For me, that classroom experience, getting to like talk about things, ask questions in real time and have somebody just sort of be your guide. I think it's a valuable experience for me. I like it. It's fun for me to be in that setting. So I think I have the engineering education background so wired into me where class is basically the teacher talking for a few minutes about some kind of topic and then working out some sort of problem, math problem, sciencey engineering formula driven thing teaching you some sort of problem solving technique and then afterwards maybe you have some homework or some examples that you're working through to make sure that you have mastery of said technique and that's what you're learning 
It's problem solving skills. Yeah, that does seem like it would be easier to get from like a video tutorial or from a book. Yeah, if the answers are if the answers to the odd questions are in the back of the textbook, you can just you can go look and see if you figured it out and have it down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as an English major and then getting my law degree, it was much more discussion oriented. And like, Ugh, no. what do you think the laws should be around this issue? And there should be a person at a dry erase board writing some numbers that are hard <laughs> to see. And you like, if they're right-handed, they're just constantly blocking what they're writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're left-handed, they're constantly like erasing what they're writing. So it's, <laughs> it, it doesn't work no matter what. Yeah. Uh, that sounds really fun. You're making it sound great. All right, so final thing to talk about here from this clip is his, his little parting shot. Don't let your past dictate who you are, but let it become part, let it be part of who you will become. Did I get that right? Anyway, you get the gist. Which Thanks, Dear Abby. Yeah, it's a quote from Dear Abby. Um, but I do think, despite the fact that it comes from kind of a trite, ridiculous source, although, I, I mean, Dear Abby is not, she knew her stuff. Yeah, like you said. But, uh... What do you think about that? How does that resonate with you? Well, the idea that don't let your past dictate who you are. I mean, your your present is certainly the sum of the buildup of all of the things that have happened in the past up until now, right? Like by definition, like who you are today is a function of who you were a split second ago and a split second before that. And, and it's just the aggregate summation of all of those different slices. I think, I think we're talking about integration right now, actually. This is a math thing, right? I, so I, is this a Riemann sum? Is that what we're doing? I think what we're really talking about is, is free will, ultimately, right? It's, we certainly have a, at the very least, we have a very powerful illusion that we have free will. It certainly feels like we have free will. I feel like it's completely up to me whether I grab the glass of water in front of me and drink it right now or not. But I have read some very interesting things on the topic of free will, and there are a lot of very intelligent people who have come to the conclusion that we might not have it. <laughs> it might just be a powerful illusion. And I will say, if you pay very, very close attention to your own experience of what it's like to be you, it's very unsettling how little you feel like whatever you think you is is actually in the driver's seat. There's just, I don't know, like if you're deciding whether to put something in your mouth or not, you can focus on it really carefully. Do I want to do this or do I not? But ultimately at some point your hand is just going to like reach for it or not. And it doesn't feel like I you have it, that much control for whether <laughs> it actually happens in the end. All right. Well, I guess this is going back to the vegetarian thing here. But uh, <laughs> I thought what you were going to say is that, yeah, you you have control over whether or not you decide to take that candy bar and eat it or whatever it is, the mental channels, the brain power, the, the techniques that you have for thinking through and analyzing this situation have been built up upon themselves based on all of your past choices. Yeah. And so like your, your willpower, your desire, your, your ability to kind of weigh the pros and cons is already wired within you from everything that has happened up to this point. And if you take a step back and go to the decision before that or the subconscious thing before that and take a step back and take a step back, all of a sudden you've had these series of things that have built on each other from the time you were an infant before you could make any decisions on your own and other people, outside agents, were making decisions for you. I thought that's where you're going to go and that our free will is sort of a function of our biological makeup and the inputs that happen to us 
before we had any mental ability to control much of anything. And then all of a sudden we're using those building blocks as the way to decide what the future holds for us when we're two. No, I and that builds to when we're 10 and when we're 80. Oh yeah. I think you put it very well. It's uh, it's basically this like crazy buildup of momentum that we have, right? Uh, we've got the DNA that we were born with and we have all the, external outputs that have been thrown at us our entire lives and yeah like if you rewind the tape to the very beginning when you're in the delivery room that yeah you start out with zero control perceived or not and then as things move forward in time you know you're you're kind of bound you're stuck with all those things that have happened to you before it seems like you have a mental probabilistic model right that like X is going to happen 72% of the time for you. And then you make some sort of choice, but you were already, you already had that probability forecast and you could simulate your life a whole bunch of times and there's going to run a spectrum of stuff, but maybe it's already pre-programmed. I don't know. Are we looking at the matrix? What's happening here? It's not, uh, again, not impossible. I feel like I'm saying that a lot, but some things, you know, um, yeah, who knows? This could all be a simulation. This could all be a dream. Nobody knows for sure. What we do know is that we've been talking for a little over an hour and we should uh, wrap this little podcast up here, whether we have control over that or not. Well, I don't have any control (laughs) and I'm probably going to go eat some meat after we hang up here. (laughs) Well, try to have some vegetarian days if you can, at the very least. I think that's a good thing to do for the environment. Get married at the skating rink. Get married at a roller skating rink. I feel like that would be the most fun wedding I'd ever been to. Don't invite Carla to your wedding. (laughs) Unless it's at a roller skating rink, in which case I'm definitely coming whether you invite me or not. She'll bring the butterflies. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. We'll catch you next time. Take care.